0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of nonfiction entertainment like never before. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to talented people from the worlds of documentaries, reality TV, true crime, game shows, and much more. Now, if you enjoy No Script No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleave.com and at Believe Podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is the multi-talented Adam Freeman. And when I say multi-talented, I really mean that. Adam is a producer, showrunner, director, writer of graphic novels and comic books, a stand-up comedian... And then on top of that, he's the president of creative at Think Factory Media. I, I, I seriously don't know how he does this all. And, and then here are some of the credits that Adam has, all right? So everybody just kind of take a deep breath, all right? For OWN, Young & Gospel, that's one of the newest ones. And then WE's long running franchise, Marriage Bootcamp, which has multiple spinoffs. Mama June, From Not to Hot, which debuted in 2017 as the highest rated series premiere in we TV network history. a What's It Worth? a Gene Simmons Family Jewels, an iconic show. TV One's R&B Divas franchise. Lifetime's Preacher's Daughters. AMC's Fourth and Loud. a Peach. Tony Danza. Oh my God, so good. And then prior to Think Factory, Adam spent eleven years at MTV, where he produced. Yes, folks, Total Request Live. And then, if that wasn't enough, this is this is amazing, Adam. You produced on air with Ryan Seacrest, and then the Chelsea Handler show. Even Nick Cannon presents Wild and Out. Welcome, folks. Adam Freeman. Adam, what's going on, man?
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. That. Uh. Wow. My mom would be really proud of that.
0: Oh, it's, isn't it incredible? Like, (laughs) do you ever go, Oh my God, like I've done, I've done a shitload of stuff.
1: Uh, I I think you survive in this industry long enough. You know, you have, you have a lot of credits. There's, you mentioned some stuff that I'm proud of. There's, there's tons of stuff on there that we won't mention that I'm not so proud of, you know, so, (laughs) but I've been able to, I've been able to feed my family and pay my rent. So it's, it's, I, I cannot complain.
0: How do you, how do you balance being someone who has so many interests from comedy comic books, unscripted TV, how do you manage to balance it all?
1: That's a great question. I don't know. I just have, I just have too many interests and you know, I've always wanted to, I just enjoy making things, you know, and that's not a comment on whether the quality of what I make is any good or not, but I've just always been someone that just had to be creating something, you know, whether it was five years old and just always drawing or painting or playing with clay or Legos or Lincoln logs for you old fucks out there like me. Uh, yep, Whatever I it know. was. Yeah. I'm just, you know what I mean? Like, it just, I just was always, if I, if we were sitting and talking face to face, like I'd be like making a paper airplane at the same time. You know, like I'm just <laughs> always, I'm just always making, and if I like something, I like to, I like to do it. You know, I'm not yeah. a good spectator. I'm not a good spectator. So it's like, You know, if if I see something that interests me, oh, I'd like to learn how to do that, whether it's playing an instrument or whether whatever, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, I, you know, I probably, you know, that that old saying, it's like, um, you know, I what is it like master of none? You know, like I have a lot of interests. I don't think I've knocked any of them out of the ballpark, but it definitely makes getting up in the morning interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Specifically, I I, you know, as I was kind of like getting ready for this, you know, stand up comedy and then being a writer of comic books graphic novels i mean mm-hmm. those are things that are not just oh hey i'm going to spend a you know a couple hours on this i mean those are crafts those are things people spend a lifetime getting you know getting really good at and then you know i know how much time and effort we put into producing on screen yeah. television how do you take time and go you know what i'm gonna take this weekend and work on my comic book or hey I'm gonna prep and write some new material for my stand-up. How do you set aside time for your extra, you know, uh, your extra? They're not even hobbies. Your extra interests.
1: I I don't have any control over what um, mode my brain, you know, kind of clicks into. I'm I'm very I'm very uh, maybe it comes from you know doing so many years of live TV, but I'm very deadline oriented. So, yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's besides all the work, whether it's selling shows, uh, you know, or selling comics or booking stand-up gigs, it's when you, when I have that much going on, it's, it's usually like, what's the next thing coming up, you know? So it's really just, it's really just prioritizing. And then it's just fitting in that time. You know, obviously my, my priority is, is Think Factory and, and Unscripted TV, and that pays the bills. And that's the company that, you know, I helped uh, build and I'm proud of. And then everything else, you know, fits around that. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes it's easier than not. It's, it's, it's a, so it's a combination of like when inspiration strikes and what somebody's waiting
0: for. Inspiration is a great word there. I'm curious, what were your early inspirations? You know, whether it was, you know, you said you mentioned being five years old. Uh, what what's got you started down this kind of path of being a writer, being a comedian, being a producer?
1: That's a that's a great question, too. I mean, you know, like I'm I'm really uh, a product of my dad and my father was uh, a huge consumer of of all things entertainment and pop culture. So he was a huge, huge movie buff. You know, we were the first on the block to have a VCR, the first on the block to have cable. You know, he was the first one I ever saw that had, like, all of our movies, like, on index cards and a little yeah. Rolodex because we had so <laughs> many movies. Yeah. You know, um, he was a huge, huge comedy fan. Um, so I just grew up listening to all those records, even though I was way too young to even understand them. I just was enthralled with, like, wow, somebody is saying something and people and, and, and getting that reaction out of, something, yeah. you know, whether it was Mel Brooks records or... George Carlin you know all the all the greats um and then and he was a musician so it was was always music in the house and you know so I really um it's you know you're a product of the environment you you grew up in so I was just surrounded by that stuff all the time and then I think really what got me on the writing and the and the it was it, it was really storytelling and whether that started you know early with all my Star Wars action figures, you know, role playing, you're making up stories playing army in the woods with your toy guns. Like you're always making up these stories and you're emulating the four o'clock movie you just saw on channel nine in New York or whatever it may be. And then it just kept going from there. It kept creating. And it's like, what's the, what is the most direct line between your brain and feeling like you made something, you know, whether that's, drawing right there and it's you know and it's done or writing a story is it's it's done you know it's hard for a five-year-old to be a filmmaker you know because you need equipment yeah. and you need resources but anyone can can pick up a piece of paper and write a story and that's really just where it I don't know I don't remember a time when I just wasn't doing things like that when I wasn't making when i was not making movies with my dad's super 8 camera cuz of course he had to have a super 8 camera he had to have the first <laughs> camcorder you know the first camcorder where you, you you carried the tape deck part of it as like a suitcase over your shoulder oh yeah um oh yeah so yeah it just it's it, maybe it's osmosis it's just what i was exposed to i just i don't remember a time when i wasn't making stuff
0: that's great yeah for me it's interesting you say like i i relate to all of that for me it's interesting My parents really, you know, they watch sports and they watch the news and I gravitated towards interviews, the post-game interviews. And I constantly, I became obsessed with asking questions, you know, and I I became that inquisitive little kid, so so much so that my mom bought me a tape recorder because we just, yeah, I would just walk around interviewing people (laughs) and she was, (laughs) it it is funny. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. Look,
1: some people are, you know, I've always felt very lucky in that from the, I knew I was going to work in this industry or I, I not work. I knew I wanted to be in this industry from the time I was a little kid. I didn't know what the job would be, but I was never one of those people that was like going to college and having no idea what they yeah. wanted to major in or wandering aimlessly. Like I always wanted to be Making television or comic books or something in the entertainment industry since since I can remember, you know, there's, there's never been any like, oh, I wonder what I'm gonna do with my life. Yeah, I just always knew, and I feel very lucky that like I found that passion early on.
0: And you found that passion at MTV at a very cool time. Um, yes, wor- working at you know on TRL in its in its heyday, right? And one of the reasons I wanted to ask you. About your experience at MTV is because, you know, with Paramount Plus, they're bringing back behind the music, they're bringing back yeah. you know, MTV raps. And, you know, my, you know, I I grew up watching those shows and I grew up, you know, with TRL. Uh, tell me a little bit about being at MTV at that time, you know, in its heyday.
1: it It, it was an experience I would not train for anything. It really was grad school. And I'll tell you why. And this is interesting, I think, for, you know, for the unscripted people and stuff that listen to your show. MTV, back then, I was there from 93 to 2003. MTV, when I was there, was not run like a television network, right? Traditional television networks, you have your development executives. They take pitches from uh, production companies. They buy the show, the production company makes it and delivers it. Yeah. When I started there and and prior to me, um, almost everything was done in house. Okay. So, with the exception of like Beavis and Butthead and, you know, the real world, which Buna Murray did, right. um, Everything else was done by a bunch of of losers like me that were like, you know, they used to call us permalance, which basically meant you work for us full time, but we, don't have to give you benefits. Right. Um, so everything was done in house. And because of that, we got to do every single kind of programming. And I grew up not knowing how lucky that was. It wasn't until I came out here um, and did this show with Ryan Seacrest, which maybe we'll talk about later, that I realized how special my MTV upbringing was because I would do uh, a video based show, uh, you know, and then I would do a game show. And then I would do a, a talk show. And then I would do a show with stand-up comedians. And you know, the whole reason I got into, into live TV, into TRL, was because someone in a meeting said, does anyone know how to do live TV? And nobody raised their hand. And then I was like, well, I'll learn. And it was just, that's how it was done. So every, every week, every day, every month, you were moving to a different genre. You were doing a different kind of thing. And you couldn't get promoted internally Uh, kind of until you had learned all these jobs and been well-rounded. So you're holding cue cards, you're shooting cameras, you're doing audio, you're, you know, you're writing, you're doing every, you're stage managing, you're doing kind of everything. And so that to me was really like college and really like grad school. And I didn't fully, I mean, I had a blast while I was there, but I didn't fully appreciate everything I was learning until I left And started dealing with the, you know, with the industry as a whole and realized how pigeonholed so many people were or how how limited their their experience or their skill set was. So it was great. It was it was literally the lunatics running the asylum because, you know, you're they look MTV pays. Crap, but you're young, but, but they give young people a tremendous amount of, uh, responsibility. You know, you get tons of, of free shit. I didn't pay for a CD or a movie or a t-shirt or a backpack or a hat for 12 years, um, and when you're young and you don't have a family and you're a single person and you're living in New York City, like that's those perks are enough. So at 24 years old, I was producing All Termination with Kennedy. And shortly after that, 120 minutes and then, you know, and then all, spring breaks and MTV Beach House and all New Year's Eve's and want to be a VJ. And then and then uh, and then TRL. Um so it was great. It was. I met my wife there. Like it changed. It's responsible for my whole life. MTV. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: That type of learning experience, right? We don't really get that now, right? No. That that kind of boot camp. You know, interesting. You guys have a show. Yeah. Marriage boot camp, but that boot level of boot camp, where you get an opportunity on the job to learn everything, when kids come out now they don't really get that that kind of set up your skill set to then go out and be able to produce and do a wide variety of shows you guys do wedding you know you you know you do relationship shows you do music you do live like you're able to do a lot do you feel like people need a little bit more of that well-roundedness in terms of their training
1: I think it's ideal. I mean, I think, you know, if you have to pay your rent, you got to take the jobs you can get. I mean, what was the other thing that was super valuable at MTV? And I don't think um, young people or, or most people get a chance anymore to do this is I had the chance to fail, Okay, I did the first show I produced entirely on my own where I was a producer. I was the showrunner, for lack of a better, you know, was Alternative Nation with Kennedy. And I think I was 24, 25 when I took over that show. It was on five days a week at midnight. No matter what we did, it got the same rating. It got like a point three. I remember every every single night Um, it was on at midnight. This was before DVRs and everything. My bosses yeah. didn't watch it. They weren't up watching it. <laughs> and the stuff that she and I were able to do was amazing. And a lot of it was crap and nobody saw it. So, you know, people nowadays, they don't have the, they don't have the chance to fail or their failures are so high profile that it, it screws them. When you have to do a, a nightly show, you got to keep, we call it feeding the beast. You know, it's like, it's, it doesn't stop. And, yeah. and you do, and it was same thing with TRL, but you do, you do a lot and not all of it is good, but you learn from it. And because of the pace of it, the, the, the moments that suck, you know, come and go and uh, you, you move on. So I did a lot of stuff at MTV that was not very good, but I did it at, you know, one in the morning where no one saw it and i was like thank god no one saw it All right i'm not going to make that mistake again <laughs> and you you learned on the job and now people you know you, they don't get a chance to to fall on their face enough because it really affects their next job next month or is that network going to hire them again or so that was equally valuable but the that and the diversity of the programming you know i didn't realize I mentioned when I I left MTV because Fox hired me a way to to produce this talk show that Ryan Seacrest was launching, and I was the first person hired, and uh, I had to hire an entire staff, and I started interviewing, and that was the first time I had ever been outside of MTV. I'd been in the business 10 years or so, but never worked outside MTV, and I started interviewing people, and I remember interviewing like an AP for something, and I said, so what do you do? And she said, "Oh, I write celebrity interview questions." And I was like, "Oh, okay. So like for red carpets?" She said, "Yeah." I go, "Oh, do you do you go on the red carpet and ask the questions?" She said, no. I said, "Okay. Do you are you in post? Do you do you edit the questions?" No. Like so, what you, I write the questions, and I was like, "That's what your skill set is—is you write the interview questions?" She said, "Yeah," and I said, "Okay, which is fine. That's what you know." It, coming from where i came from yeah i couldn't i couldn't get promoted from pa to ap until i knew how to write the interview questions i could shoot it you know i could right. i could do a string out of it i could so i was like wow these people really have you know and i don't mean to make these sweeping generalizations but but most of the people i encountered had a very very narrow focus you know i right. am a i'm a segment producer for conflict resolution talk and that's what i do i find people from florida with no teeth and i fly them in and they confront their cousin about the baby that they thought they had and that's what they do um and i was lucky that i was able to do you know almost every kind of genre
0: i have to ask about spring break right i mean again yeah like i was i I mean I, i guess I was junior high teenager whatever in ohio right so like That was, you know, incredible to see MTV spring break, you know, we'd rush home and there you guys were every afternoon and we got to kind of experience spring break. How tough was that to produce?
1: If you asked me at the time, I would say, Oh my God, it's impossible. If you asked me since I left, like it, it was so much easier than, you know, everything I would do after that, but it was, it was fun. It was challenging. But, like, again, we didn't, we were, there was no supervision, you know? Yeah. So, like, there weren't, like, I don't remember, maybe I'm just looking at it through rose colored glasses, but I don't remember, like, turning in cuts and getting notes, you know? Like, yeah. You did, the sh- you did the show, you edited it up until, like, the day it aired, and then it aired, you know? It was a blast, you know? It was, I mean, it was, You you quickly learned at MTV who was there to, make television and to be professional and who was there because they thought working there was going to be a big party okay do you know what i mean so yeah, you go to, you, yeah. anytime you went on the road you know as a bunch of 24 25 year olds with a corporate credit card and tons of petty cash in charge of making a tv show there were the people that would come back with a good tv show um And those were me and my my close friends that ended up being the core group there for, you know, the 10 years that I was there. And then there were those other people that came and went because it would be like, oh, wow, yeah, so and so blew all the petty cash on uh, tequila at Senior Frogs in Cancun (laughs) last night. And you realize, okay, they you know, they're not really serious about their TV career. It was, you know, but it was, it was challenging. It's, you know, you're dealing with drunk kids, you're dealing with logistics, you're sometimes you're in a foreign country, sometimes, you know, you're, you're trying to make a show with, with very little money, but you know, again, you're young, you're, you know, you're, you're traveling on somebody else's dime and you're, you're uh, working outside on the beach. Like I, I would sound like an idiot if I complained. So, um, it was fun. It was a, it was a blast. It was, as, it was as much fun as it looked like it was stressful at the time, but you don't, I didn't realize how, what little stress it was until I, you know, went on to, to bigger and better things and really felt stress.
0: Best story from your TRL days.
1: Best story. Uh, well,
0: or craziest or, you know, either best experience or worst experience. I'll tell you that one of the most
1: surreal ones was. There was an incident that was very high profile. We had, um, and this is, it's a, it's a tragic end, but I'll just tell it to you from my point of view. Okay. So there were, a lot of people know there was a, Mariah Carey was on the show once and she, she almost pretty much had a nervous breakdown live on our show. And I think almost directly after the show, She whether they her people thought that she might harm herself. She ended up actually going away and getting some help for a while, Um, which is which is horrendous. Um, So it sounds really insensitive that it's going to be one of the funniest days of my life. But because it started very differently for me, right? So it started okay. at like 9 a.m. that morning. New Mariah Carey was going to be on the show. She'd been on the show before. Didn't wasn't really thinking about it. And I get a call from security downstairs at 1515 Broadway. And they say, um, you have uh, uh, something here from uh, Miss from Mariah Carey, a package. And I said, okay, okay. Uh, send it upstairs. And they said, we can't do that. And I said, Why? And they said, we don't allow live animals in the building. And I was like, okay, like you need to come down. So I came downstairs and there was some assistant or PA from from Sony. And they're standing at security with a lamb, a live lamb, like on a leash. And because I guess her, her nickname for people was lamb. She used to call everybody lamb. Um, and they she said, Mariah is really looking forward to being on the show today. You know, this is a little gift. Oh and my god. I, I was like, I can't take a, a live lamb. And you could tell this, you could tell this kid, I say kid it was probably like 18 months younger than me. This kid was like scared shitless that he was gonna have to go back and, and say he failed at his task.
0: Oh my god. And I was like,
1: I'm so sorry. And it was like, Well, I have this bottle of champagne and I have the lamb. And I was like, well, I'll take the champagne. He's like, I have to give you both. I can't give you just one. I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing Miss Carrie, but I'm really sorry. And he goes away all dejected. I'm like, OK, go back, doing the rest of the stuff, prepping for the show. Like one o'clock, 1.30, there's a knock on my office door. And I open up the door and there is that same PA standing there in a lamb costume. Holding a bottle of champagne looking like you know ralphie having to dress up like a bunny on christmas morning from a christmas story and he's like here's the champagne for miss carrie oh my and i was God. like oh dude i am so sorry and i took the champagne and then she was on the show and we were getting ready for the show and they're like mariah wants to talk to you in the dressing room uh and i was like okay and you know i didn't look she, didn't want, she wanted to talk to the person in charge even the champagne it was very nice she, mariah carey has no idea who i am yeah um You know, it was like whoever's in charge over there or whoever the show owner is, send them a gift. So I get called into the green room and it's Mariah and she is she is not really coherent. And I, you know, I grew up very sheltered, very boring, never a drug guy, not a big drinker, very naive to. If people, you know, people on substances and, you know, I've worked with some people that were like raging coke addicts and I was like, wow, I just they told me they had a sinus problem. I just always thought it was a sinus. problem Like I just my brain doesn't go to that place. Yeah. You know, I'm just very, yeah. very naive that way. And sh- so she was either under the influence of something or or about, you know, starting to go through this mental breakdown. And she started talking to me and making no Sense And she started saying like, okay, I'm going to come out and the leg, the leg, it has to be the leg. And I'm going to do this. And then you hit me here and I do this. And I was like, what, what? And then after like two minutes of her talking to me, I was like, Oh, I think she's talking about how she wants to be shot. Like she wants us to pan up her leg. Like it was just bizarre. And then she went out on the show in the moment it was Uh, this very funny bizarre surreal live tv moment and now looking back in in retrospect you know it was she was she was struggling with something and it's and it's sad and i'm glad that she's that she got past it but it was it it was a surreal surreal day with this poor kid trying to deliver me a lamb
0: oh man Um, yeah i i uh, can't imagine the look on your face
1: it was you Um, know it was it but when you do a daily live show, like I, I referred to it before as feeding the beast, you know, you go live every day because the clock strikes three o'clock or whatever, not yes. because you're you're ready. And so you're constantly like you're prepping that day's show. You're 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 having meetings about tomorrow's show and net week's show. And the minute you get off air, your brain like kind of resets. And you, yeah. And you know, a half hour after TRL went off the air, we were having our first meeting about the next day's show. You know, right. so there's so much that, like, I don't even remember because it just would go in. And, you know, you were just so focused on the task right in front of you. You know, we gave away one time, we gave away a million dollars of the Offspring's money. There was like some contest Holy that we crap. did on the air, and yeah, the Offspring had came on with a million dollars. And we and we had a like some kind of game show contest and we gave this young girl from Kentucky or or somewhere in the south a uh, million dollars. And then we got off the air and me and my senior team went back upstairs and we were in the conference. room. We were talking about the next day and who was coming on. And someone I can't remember who it was. It was like it was it was Judy McGrath or Doug Herzog or someone you know much much higher up the food chain like popped their head in and said guys great great show today and my whole staff looked at each other and we were like what was on today's show and they were like uh 22 minutes ago you gave away a million dollars and we were like oh right right thanks thanks sorry we're talking about you know whatever the third eye blind is coming in tomorrow sorry you know and we was just it just goes your brain just moves ahead to the next shiny object you know
0: yeah. I call it the but it windshield was a wiper. Yeah. The windshield wiper effect. You just yeah. wipe it off. Right. Yeah. You're just
1: moving forward. You're moving forward so fast. The minute you pass that road sign, you're like, okay, that exit's done. Okay. What's, what's,
0: what's the next exit? You know? <laughs> yes. Um, so, I mean, I wanted, I, I had to ask you about the comedy because you know, you're producing that. When did you decide, okay, I've got, you know, I'm going to, I have the courage. I've got the guts to go for it and jump up on stage because a lot of you know a lot of people are funny a lot of people can can even write comedy but that's a it's a whole nother level to have the guts to step up on stage and tell jokes in front of a live audience
1: that was stand like i said going all the way back to my dad stand up was something i was always you know obsessed with and always and then once you know once cable tv and hbo came out and watching all the ronnie dangerfield specials and eddie murphy and all that you know it, I've, I've always just loved it, loved it, loved it. And I was always kind of referred to as like the funny kid or whatever. And then, but I always looked at it. I was so in awe of it, of stand up and people that did stand up. I, I've, in retrospect, now I can tell that I was way too precious about it. You know, it, you have a baseball player that you love, right? You love A-Rod, right?
0: Ugh, you, can, yes, you can. Yeah, can get your point. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. So, who, <laughs> okay. Uh, um, you as know a what I mean. Reds fan. I was a Barry Larkin guy. Okay.
1: Okay. So there you go. So you, you know whoever whoever it may be, Pete Rose, whoever, right? Okay. So you yes, up, Pete Rose. So you grow up loving Pete Rose. You watch Pete Rose on TV, and then you can go outside and you can play baseball and have fun. But you know, you're not Pete Rose, right? Nobody just walks outside at five years old and tells jokes on the street. So the only people that you see doing what you love are the masters. So to me, it was like I could never be fucking George Carlin. Right. You know, and it was like so I always assumed it was like stand up is something that I love. And it's those special people over there that know how to do it. And so I always approach things from, I came at it from the side, you know, and when I was at MTV, a lot of the VJs, uh, you know, the two places they always seemed to pick VJs from were either radio or comedy, right? So you had, you had Bill Bellamy, you had Pauly Shore, you had, you know, you had Jon Stewart had his first talk show on MTV, you had Ed Marquez, you had, you know, all these great people, Colin Quinn, all these great people. I would work with, I would always be drawn to those comedians and the same way you know a sports fan recognizes a real a real fellow sports fan because they know their history they know the stats like the comedians usually really like me because they're like oh this kid knows this shit you know yeah um and so i would write stuff for them and every once in a while they'd say hey do you mind if i use this in my act and you know and they when they went on the road and i was and that kind of scratched the itch for a while okay and then i really got thrown into it Heavier when um, when I was the showrunner of Chelsea Handler's first show, and she and I worked uh, really closely together for that time period, and at the time, Chelsea, people don't even remember, at the time, Chelsea was also a regular um, contributor to The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. So she would, she would do field pieces for him and things like that. So she started asking me to help her with that. And I would go to the tonight show with her and I would sit with her and Jay and work out what the desk bits were going to be. And then that scratched the itch a little more. And, and starting then, I was like, okay, I I started writing jokes that weren't for other people and just putting them in a file and whatever. And like I said, I was always very precious about it. And then I don't know, it took a flash forward, another 10 years. And it was like 2017, 2018, when I was like, I have to do this. I have wow. to do it at least, I have to do it at least once, you know, even if I just get on stage once and and do it and never do it again, I can't go my whole life and never having done it. And so I made myself a promise that in 2018, I was going to perform myself, you know, and I started doing it. And I was very lucky in that it just took off faster than, uh, than I thought it would. And I started getting, these uh, opportunities and people started asking me to do their shows and play their clubs. I said yes to everything. Cause I was so flattered just to be asked. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that anyone was requesting that I do something for them. And, uh, and I've just been doing it ever since. And it's been great. And it's a great compliment to my day job because it allows me to be creative. And like I said before, whether it's a up or a ball of clay, there is zero a barrier between the creative process and making the thing, you know, I love making unscripted TV, but I have to, we have to come up with the show idea and we have to cut a sizzle reel yeah. and maybe we have to find a cast and then we have to pitch it and then we have to sell it. And then we have to argue over a budget we have to make it. And the network gives you cuts and they do that, you know, and, and the part of me that, that wasn't the itch that wasn't being scratched was like, I just want to, I just want to think of something and I want to do it. And and with stand up, I can think of a joke in the car on the way to the comedy store and get up on stage and tell it to an audience, you know, 17 minutes later. And if it's great, it's uh, all due to me. And if it sucks, it's all due to me. I can't blame it on network notes. I can't (laughs) say, uh, you know. Mama June derailed this when she was a half hour late or whatever it is. You know, I can't blame it on anyone. It's purely it, it lives or dies based on me. And that was exciting. You know, so I've, I've been having a blast and I've just been I'm trying not to overthink it. I'm kind of taking the opportunities as they come. But it, it's a it's a lot of fun. And, and now that the world's opening back up again, I hope to be doing it a lot more.
0: In terms of the creative process, how different is it when you're, you know, you're writing jokes versus you're coming up with a new format you're you know figuring out a new show tell me a little bit about the difference in the creativity uh between the two
1: that's interesting I mean they they they, they are kind of similar I mean you know I'm not I'm not very good I wish I was better at it I'm not very good at like okay I'm gonna sit down right now from two thirty to 3 30 and come up with a new idea for a show you know yeah at the same time, like I said, I am I am um, very deadline oriented. So, you know, sometimes that pressure is a is a good thing. But for me, at least it happens very quickly. Like you get kind of like that flash, you know, and it's like it, it sometimes it, it comes like fully formed or mostly formed. You know, the 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 TV show thing is different because I, I, I'm part of such a great team. It's really that's very, very collaborative, you know. Yeah. Where when I'm writing jokes, uh, I'm, I'm by myself, you know. Um, so, and I and I love collaborating. I love throwing out ideas. I love someone taking my idea and shaping it and making it better. I love having someone on Think Factory's development team throw out an idea and saying, "Well, what if you just did it five degrees this way?" And suddenly everyone gets excited and you know. So I love I love the collaboration process. But to me, b- both of them, it's just like it hits me when it hits me and it's hard to force it. Yeah. Um, and I wish I was more disciplined that I could force it. I wish I was that Stephen King that was like, I'm going to write from 9.30 to 4.30 every <laughs> yeah. day, seven days a week. And I'm going to, you know, I wish I could do that. My brain just doesn't work that way.
0: You but, and me both. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of writing, okay, uh, I'm fascinated and I'm dying to know about the comic books, the graphic novels. Because again, this is completely different you know, I yeah. mean, so how did that start to come about? And, you know, tell me a little bit about that process.
1: You know, again, from when I was little, like I just was always a, a big geek and, and a big comic book fan, you know, and, and used to go visit my grandparents in, uh in Brooklyn. And my grandfather, every time I went, would hand me $5 to go to the bodega around the corner where they had the spinning comic book rack. And, you know, and I would go and pick out whatever it was. And, and, and I just was a huge, huge comic book fan. And like I said before, if I like something, I want to do it. I'm, yeah. I'm a horrible spectator starting, you know, fifth and sixth grade, I was like drawing my own comic books and everything. And, you know, just, just creating it just for myself. And if it was school projects, if you had to write a term paper in sixth grade, I would say, can I draw a comic book of it? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so something I always wanted to do. And then one of one of my uh, best friends from when uh, you know we, we've we've known, known each other since fifth grade, a gentleman named uh, Godfather of my children, my my best friend Mark Bernardin, who uh, is the co-host of uh, Fat Man Beyond, a very popular podcast with Kevin Smith for the last yeah, five,
0: six yeah. years
1: or so um mark and i have known each other since fifth grade and bonded instantly over our our love of all things geekdom we are uh occasional writing partners and have written spec screenplays and things over the years and we've had some things optioned and we uh he was at entertainment weekly at the time he was there the whole time i was at mtv for 10 years mark was at ew for 10 years and mark convinced ew to start Covering comic books. This is right when, like, Dark Knight started. You know, when they, when people, when they, when the Hollywood machine started to realize all the IP they had on their hands. Right. And through through writing and 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 kind of editing the comic book coverage for EW, Mark made a lot of uh, a lot of connections in the industry. And he and I had a long, thick folder of ideas. That some of them we turned into screenplays. Some of them we turned into. You know, into pilot scripts, and there were a bunch in there that we thought, well, these these would probably make pretty good comic books. And he was like, well, I, I've met some people, so we started going through his rolodex and started pitching people. And almost simultaneously, two people gave us our first uh, our first gig. One was uh, one of the most famous comic book artists of all time, Jim Lee, who's who runs now runs DC. At the time, he was. You know, uh, celebrated artist um, Jim Lee um, bought an original idea of ours uh, called The Highwaymen for uh, a subsidiary of DC called Wildstorm. And then at okay. the same time, um, a great guy out in Northern California, Larry Young and his wife Mimi, uh, they had an independent publishing house called AIT Planet Lar, and they bought another idea of ours called Monster Attack Network, which was like a you know big exploding monster, uh, you know Godzilla kind of thing. And before you know it, we were writing to a graphic novel and a limited series at the same time. And then it just started to kind of take off. People liked our work. DC hired us to take over some some books for them, which we did. You know, so we started doing work for hire stuff. We started selling more original stuff, kind of like the stand up, like it kind of it kind of got a life of its own. What, but again it was like a dream come true. It was to be able to say you put words in Wolverine's mouth or Batman's mouth Yeah. to that little 5-year-old kid buying X-Men on a spinner rack at a bodega on Flatbush Avenue is like is huge.
0: What is that it's feeling fun. like? I mean I that's what I'm saying like you know producing television I'm sure like you know you, you were producing some of the coolest shows on at MTV and but you know I can't imagine what was that like when You know, you're writing for DC comics. What was that like when, you know, you saw your your words, like you said, coming out of the most some of the most famous comic book characters ever? I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty fucking cool.
1: You know, I mean, to to walk in to spend your whole life going to comic book stores and spending your, you know, allowance or your paycheck, and then to be able to walk into a comic store and see your comic on a shelf next to those or your name on the cover of you know of a batman comic or whatever is uh is great it's just like a, a it's a dream come true and it's it's amazing to be able to think that you've you've contributed in some however small way to that legend you know to that you know that story that character or whatever so it's 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 a blast it's i've been very very lucky and you know even even on the shittiest days I, I i try i'm not always successful but i try my best not to complain because i my job is pretty cool and i get to do fun stuff if i was if i was digging ditches on the side of the road or you know i i, I did a reality show with coal miners in kentucky in west virginia i was like those men and women work their ass off. Like, yes. okay, I can, I can, you know, I could babysit Mama June for a couple of hours and be, and not complain. Cause those people like that are, you know, or police officers or first responders, those are the people that are like, holy shit. So it's, I've been very, very lucky. I don't know how to explain it. Cause there've been tons of people that have tried just as hard as me, that are more talented than me, that just maybe they weren't in the right place at the right time or,
0: or whatever. So It's been good. Support for our podcast is brought to you by Just Live, a trusted source for high-quality wellness CBD products created by athletes just for you. If you're like me, the past year has been really stressful, and I've even had some sleepless nights. That's why Just Live came out with their new CBD gummy line. They have six different flavors and functions, including sleep, energy, focus, immunity, calm, and vitamin C. Plus, they're vegan and low sugar. Just Live was founded by professional athletes Clay Thompson, Alex Morgan, Travis Pastrana, and Paul Rodriguez because they wanted to create a CBD product they could trust and could stand behind. If you need support with sleep, focus, energy, stress, or immune health, I highly recommend giving these a try. Right now, if you buy one of their new gummy products, you get one free. There are six different benefits to choose from. And instead of just choosing one, visit justlive.com and use code SUPPORT to buy one, get one free. Buy one, get one free of the new gummies line with code SUPPORT at justlive.com. That's buy one, get one free at justlive.com. Use code SUPPORT. All right, let's 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 talk a little bit about the unscripted. you yeah. have had a ton of success. Uh, Gene Simmons Family Jewels really was an important show in terms of our genre because of the stature of his celebrity and opening up kind of his world, his family, you know, you had the Osbournes and whatnot, but then Gene kind of that, I felt like that family kind of took it to the next level. Tell me a little bit about that experience working with Gene, with his family and the insanity that was going on with that show.
1: It was, it was great. That's similar to MTV. That that was like, while I was in the thick of it, I was, I was really stressed, but looking back on it, I didn't, didn't realize, I mean, I knew I was having fun while I was doing it, but you know, it it was, it was great. Gene, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Gene and the family, they um, for the first, I came in right before season two started. So they had done 12 episodes. My, um, you know, professional partner and CEO of, of Think Factory Media, Adam Reed, him and Leslie Greif, our former CEO, they had created the show and had a really hellacious first season shooting these twelve episodes and kind of cobbling them together and really kind of figuring out what the show was. And the show did well enough to get a second season. And they brought me in fresh off of, uh, fresh off of Chelsea Handler and the Cannon, and they they took a chance on me because I hadn't done a docu series before. And they told me when they, when they hired me, look, we can't give you any kind of guarantee or anything because Gene and the family don't like anyone. And we've tried to hire a lot of other people and they've all been fired. And so you could be here a week. You could be here longer. We don't really know. It's not up to us. And I said, okay. And went to work with Gene and the family. And, you know, in the beginning, they, they, uh, hazed me pretty bad and not, didn't haze me like, like, they're not yellers. They're not screamers. They haze me in like, just, just fucking with me. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> just like for their own amusement and not in like a mean way, just like, you know, and, and, um, and it, and then it went from like them, them hazing me to amuse themselves to, they wouldn't work with anyone else. And as think factory started to grow, and my role started to grow and we started to s- develop other shows and sell more shows. Myself and Adam Reed, like we kept trying to extract me from Family Jewels. And um, by then my bond with the family was so strong that they wouldn't work with with another showrunner. So until like the final season, my two number twos, two really uh, incredible smart women, um, Mariah Muse and, and Aaron Richards they had been they had started as APs under me and Adam on the show and by the end they were show running and directing and the last season they really stepped up and delivered an amazing season after being with me and being a key to the show's success for so long, but it was great and again it was one of those you talk about like Batman and you talk about or, you know putting words in so and so's mouth like I had kiss posters on my wall yes. I went as Ace Freely I went as Ace Freely for Halloween so you know, if you would have told me when I was five years old that I would have my name on the cover of a Batman comic, I would be like, screw you. If you would have told me when I was seven years old, that I'd be flying in Kiss's private jet over Germany somewhere on tour with them. I would, wouldn't believe you either, you know? So it was great. And the family, um, uh, ended up, we ended up being really, really close and, you know, and they were great to my, my family. They were Jean and Shannon were great to my kids. And, and, um, it was was great it really became like a family in a, in a way because we worked so long and so hard together you know that show it was 168 episodes yeah. we were in, we were in unlike most tv we were in continuous production for whatever it was 5 years 6 years there was never any because what we would do is right when you know, the blessing and the curse of working with Gene is that obviously he has a few things on his plate, right? So (laughs) the the reality show is always in second position to Kiss and to all of his other businesses. So what happened would be, you know, we would have an air date and we'd be shooting the show. And then Gene would say, well, I have to go to Singapore because they're going to do a Kiss musical and I have to meet with the people or whatever. And it was like, well, Gene, I can't have you leave for three weeks. We have episodes. And I was like, well, I'm sorry. So then it was going to A&E and being like, well, I think I have to follow Gene to Singapore because I have to get an episode with him while he's <laughs> on the road. Otherwise, we won't make yeah. air. Yeah. So so I ended up traveling the world on A&E's dime because I had, to, I had to basically chase Gene as he handled all his other business opportunities in order to deliver the show on time. And then what would end up happening is we would shoot a season, we'd be and you know, we'd be editing at the same time, as the season would start to wind down. You know, me and Adam Reed would and, and Leslie Greif would start to say, "Okay, Gene, what do you have coming up? What's big on the horizon?" Oh well, Kiss is going to go to Australia and do this. We're okay, great. Well, and then we'd start leaking things to Annie, like, "Look, I know we haven't even debuted season three yet, but Gene and Kiss are going to Australia." If we, if you can keep us shooting continuously, we can. We don't have to pay for Gene to go. We don't have to. We'll have all this production value. All you have to do is pay. And we always got like picked up, or at least got cash flowed some money to continue shooting before this next season even aired. So we were in no lie. We were in continuous production for you know 160 something episodes. So we were together all the time. All the, all the time and we shot seven days a week because nick and sophie were in school so they could only shoot in the evenings when they got home or on the right. weekend so we'd be right. shooting during the week it wasn't like if we worked saturday and sunday with nick and sophie we took off monday and tuesday like so we would work you know i think the longest i went was like 92 days without a day off on that show um but it was great. I, you know, went. I hit almost every continent, um,
0: Oh, wow. That's you know, awesome. Got to,
1: got to tour with the band. It was, and they're, and they're great people. And I'm, and I'm still close with them to this day. I was text Shannon's birthday was a couple of days ago. I was texting her. So they're great.
0: That was a, a big show for you guys. And, yeah. you know, another, you know, big show that now has blossomed into a huge franchise is marriage Camp. You know, you you go to marriage bootcamp reality stars and you do a hip hop version, you do a bridezilla's version. Okay, the idea is pretty simple. You know, you got couples that are, uh, you know, struggling, and how do you help that? Did you ever think that putting a bunch of couples together, trying to work out their problems, would become this massive franchise for you guys? No,
1: and you know, very few people know it actually was spawned out of family jewels
0: Um, that i had no idea
1: yeah because you know gene and shannon were together for 20 some odd years never had were not married had nick and sophie you know were not married and that was like a you know uh that was like their thing you know like they don't need marriage they don't whatever they you know yes and and in our second to last season or so they started to have some relationship problems and it started and the show, the final two seasons of family jewels had a very different tone because it went from being this family sitcom to now like a family. Are they going to be, are they going to fall apart or not? And is this couple that has defied the Hollywood and rock and roll odds for over two decades, are they going to fall apart? And Gene was very opposed, you know, Gene, and I'm similar, but Gene is a very black and white person. You know, it's either this or it's that, or I like this or I like, you know. Um, And so he was always very opposed to any kind of like therapy or marriage counseling or anything. And they were struggling. And so we thought, okay, well, you know what, let's work it into an episode and we'll get an episode out of it and, and it'll, it'll help them. So we did some research and we found this couple uh, out of Texas that, had that ran this marriage boot camp um, program as a as a um, you know nonprofit, actually part of like a, a ministry there. Even though it wasn't you know it wasn't all based on religion, but they had some spiritual elements. And um, we found them and we uh, flew them to L.A. and we found some other couples in in crisis. And for a weekend, we put them in this house with Gene and Shannon, and we had them do an abbreviated version of the boot camp. Um, and Gene. You know, to this day, G- who, Gene and Shannon, I think they just celebrated their fifth or their sixth wedding anniversary. Um, for the longest time, Gene and Shannon like attributed the marriage boot camp to getting them down the aisle. Like it, wow. it worked, and it wasn't, it wasn't bullshit. And it, and once I saw it work on them, and they are two of the smartest and simultaneously stubborn people that I've that I've ever met right when I saw it crack jeans you know android vulcan shell <laughs> and and I saw it work on Chan and I was like there's a show here yeah so then we started pitching uh pitching it as a show and we tv bought it and you know 17 seasons later Ooh. we're still going
0: I did not know that that's that's yeah. great there's been some pretty magnificent moments on marriage bootcamp throughout the years. Do you have a favorite moment on marriage bootcamp or is there a moment that you still go, I can't believe that that happened? This, a lot, I mean, I no,
1: so, so many. I mean, one of the most surreal ones was, was this, the season that we had um, Tara Reid on and uh she was, it's, I think most of this is, was all documented in an episode, you know, for, for better or worse, I don't say this out of ego and trust me, it's not, never my choice. I appear in marriage bootcamp a lot because we break the fourth wall a lot because
0: that's good
1: because myself and you talk about like loyalty and smart people in this business, the showrunner of marriage bootcamp now is the aforementioned Aaron Kelly, Aaron Richards, my AP from Gene Simmons Family Jewels, um, is my showrunner on Marriage Boot Camp because she's a rock star and you have to keep rock stars close to you because they make you sure. look good. So whenever, you know, the cast has a meltdown, they want to speak to the person in charge. And that's Aaron or myself, you know. So because I was integral in gaining Tara's trust to come on the show, you know, before we shot. I was the first name out of her mouth when something was wrong. You know, where's Adam? Okay. So there's a scene in her season of marriage boot camp where I'm sitting in the production office and I'm like working on the next day's episode, and I look up and she's standing in the production office. <laughs>
0: oh my god! So there
1: was a, I you know, I guess she saw. You know, we had like a hidden door that went yeah, to this one wing of the house, and she, yeah. she's production savvy. So all of a sudden she's standing there, and I'm like, "What are you doing here?" And she started yelling at me. Oh God! And I was trying to calm her down. And then the control room is right opposite the production office. So then she walked into the control room, or she followed me to control room, I think. And she was yelling at me, and she wasn't again kind of like Mariah Carey. She wasn't really being coherent or making a lot of sense. And then at and then at one point Tara goes, and you know my mom is with me, and I said what? She goes, my mom hears everything that I say and do and I went okay and she said my mom's with me every day and I'm like okay so now she thinks like the spirit of her dead mom is like watching us and she goes you want to talk to her and I was like do I want to talk to your mom and she goes yeah and she reaches in her bra and she takes out her cell phone her mom's alive and well her mom she had put us all on speaker and her mom was on like she her mom was literally listening she was on the cell phone
0: and she okay. goes, mom, are you
1: there? And her mom goes, yeah, I'm listening. I've heard all of this. And I was like, okay. And she goes, and, and, the, and her mom starts yelling at me going, Adam, I heard everything you said. And I was like, I didn't say anything wrong. You, I, you can, you can hear everything I said. And then her mom started cursing me out <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Uh," and it was just one of those surreal moments. Yeah. And You know, and it was surreal with Tara Reid because the first time I met Tara Reid, you talk about everything coming full circle. The first time I met Tara Reid was when she was dating Carson Daly Uh, on uh, Twitter Request Live. (laughs) And, you know, and we went out for drinks or something because she was going to co-host the show the next day because American Pie 12 was coming out or something. So it's like it's just they the moments are surreal and they start to blur together after a while you know because it, it's i'm not gonna say ptsd because it's so overused and i and i don't right. want to yes. at all cheapen people that that legitimately suffer from ptsd sure. but sure. in the television world it's a television ver- version of ptsd which pales right. in comparison but where you're like Such crazy shit happens that you're like it like you either mentally block it out of your head or, you know, or like I said before, the machine keeps moving and you go on to the next day. So Tara Reid was one. Definitely. We had Corey Feldman on, which, um, you know, it was in a lot of the press that he sued us. So that was very interesting. If you would have told me, you know, when I was sitting in a movie theater watching The Lost Boys that one of the Frog Brothers would sue me, I wouldn't think that would ever happen. So, yeah, it's just, it's a, it, we work in a bizarre industry and bizarre shit happens and you got to kind of roll with it.
0: Has there been any like serious like infidelity or anything crazy amongst the couples that, you know, blew your mind?
1: You know, I think viewers look at a show like Marriage Bootcamp or The Real World or any of those. And when they hear cast members say, oh, after a while you forget the cameras are there, I think <laughs> the average person goes, oh, that's, you're full of shit. How would you forget? But it's true. You forget the cameras are there. And especially in the boot camp house, because we have robotic cameras everywhere. So right. there's not an inch of that house that is not covered. So they go through this stressful day with all these camera operators in their face, which they start to forget about anyway. But then when the, when the most of the shoot day ends and those camera operators go home, I think they forget that there's still 34 other cameras pointed at them. 24 hours a day and yeah. one season we had a uh, little mo and her husband at the time carl were on was on and i went home for the night and i came back in the next morning and one of my story overnight story producers was like you will never believe what happened last night and i said what I said check this out and they roll back the tape and there's carl in the kitchen uh eating cereal facetiming with this woman going like hey baby tell me you love me tell me you love me and she was like, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. I can't wait to see. You. And it was like he's FaceTiming with another woman while he's in the boot camp house with his wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was one of those like. What the fuck? Like, you know, <laughs> it's one of those moments where as a human being, you're like, I have just lost faith in the human race. And then as yeah. a TV producer, you're like, thank you, reality gods, for shining right. this upon, you know, for giving me this gift and then what's even better what's even better is that then they people get caught doing stuff on camera and they They deny deny it it or they they lie about it it, yeah and it's like so we wrote we showed him the tape i never said that i never said that it's just like you know the typical guy caught cheating deny deny. (laughs) we have you on tape saying that i was talking to my sister you were talking to your (laughs) sister. like it was so bizarre but that's like an I, I wish that was like a rare that's like a normal occurrence on that show. It's you you're you you know you get crazy characters.
0: <laughs> Recently it was announced you're doing a show with Own, Young and Gospel.
1: Yeah, it was announced uh, Thursday, March 18th. It was announced.
0: Tell us a little bit about Young and Gospel.
1: I'm really excited about it. We we are just about to start shooting. We have an amazing cast, and this is really um think factory and, and owns, um, chance to show a, a new side of, uh, the gospel industry. These are really smart, entrepreneurial, talented young women, self starters, gospel singers that, um, are kind of redefining what gospel music, um, is and what it means while also, um, kind of feeling the pressures that the, that the old school, gospel culture puts on them you know these are these are obviously women of god and are very spiritual and they have a lot of uh a lot of, of pressures and and decisions that they have to make because as they try to cross over and 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 attract more of an R&B audience you know there is a record industry that wants to sexualize music artists and you know and and do other things and it's it's really these these women um and their their journey to forge the career and the and create the music that they want to create without compromising their beliefs and their morals and we have um you know this this amazing cast and we're literally just about to start filming so awesome yeah i'm super excited Very cool.
0: okay one of the things i wanted to ask you about as somebody who has had a lot of success right so you're you know you're you're comedy career is kind of off and running, right? You're excited about that.
1: Yeah. You're
0: writing with comic books is something you're super excited about. And obviously in the unscripted world, you guys are selling, you're producing a lot. What are your goals now? Well, how do you, how are you setting your goals? Whether you're looking five years into the future, 10 years in the future. I, I, it's a question. I kind of ask a lot of my friends, colleagues, because yeah. you know, uh, we kind of have to keep pushing ourselves. What, how do you look at, you know, your goals as, as you look into the future?
1: It's hard. You know, you're, you're always your own worst critic. And I, I think part of my, you know, I, I, the, the word success even coming out of my mouth feels like I, I have, I feel awkward saying it because I'm just, I, you know, not to start paying you like a therapist but like I'm never really I'm never really satisfied do you know what I mean and like I just yeah, had a birthday sure. I just had a birthday recently and I was like a little depressed because uh because I I spent my birthday like focusing on like oh another. I didn't I haven't yet I've have yet to do this and I've yet to do this and yet to do this And my friends and family were like, asshole, look at what, look, how about you focus on the things you have done? And my brain just isn't wired that way. I I think I would be, I probably wouldn't be doing stand up comedy if I was more well-adjusted, but I just, my brain isn't, isn't wired that way for better or worse. I always tend to focus on like, what's, what's left, you know, what's, what's the next thing. And I have a very hard time living in the moment and enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. I mean, I, and I'm literally talking about you being my therapist. I'm having this epiphany as we, as we speak, how many times in this conversation today did I say, well, I didn't realize it at the time, but in (laughs) retrospect, (laughs) like, and I swear to God, like literally like it, this just hit me at this moment. Like I I'm very, I'm, I'm not good at living in the moment. My goals. I mean, my, my goals are, you know, for me and Adam Reed to, to, build continue to build think factory into a world superpower you know um yeah for 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 stand-up um i just want to be working with with better people and funnier people and you know and and get some bigger opportunities the comic book thing you know is kind of is what it is i have i can't announce it yet but i have a i have a a new book that i'm that me and mark bernard are, are writing right now I don't know. There's so much that I want to do. You know, I think factory, you know, was purchased by ITV um, five years ago. Um, They purchased it from Leslie Greif, our our former CEO. And it's, and it's been great. The only thing that I would say I miss about think factory uh, 1.0 was we did um, because of, uh, it was Leslie's passion. We did a lot of scripted and, um, and our focus since we've become an ITV company, you know, they are an unscripted company. So naturally our focus is, is on unscripted and ITV has a whole scripted, you know, division. But when we were a smaller scrappy or company, we got to do some cool scripted stuff, you know, big stuff like Hatfields and McCoys with Kevin Costner. And we got to do little, you know, TV movies as, you know, as well. And that, that scratched an itch for me because being a writer and being you know in-house that I was able to 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 help develop a lot of those things right um and and work with Leslie and 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 begin to learn the scripted business from Leslie and I and I would do dialogue passes on the movies and and I would ghost write some things that you know hopefully the WGA isn't listening and and have <laughs> have a lot of fun doing that and that's something that I that I don't get to do so you know myself and 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 at the same time my writing partner. Mark Bernard is um, having he's since left journalism behind and he's having tremendous success in, in scripted. Um, he's worked on Castle Rock. He's worked on uh, you know, a, a million and one different shows um, and just totally kicking ass. He's sold some pilots. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to leave my unscripted roots behind and my bank account can't afford me to, but I would love to be able to, to kind of plant my flag in the, in the scripted world, finally with some original content that I wrote or he and I wrote, that would be, that would be pretty amazing, but I have no idea when in the day I would find time to do it. Yeah. But that's probably the one right now on the bucket list. That's like the one thing that, you know, we've gotten close. I we, He and I have sold some screenplays. We had some comic book option by Disney and places, but I haven't had, I haven't had an original story produced and scripted, you know, make, make it to the screen. So that would be, that would be a great goal to, to score.
0: Well, there you go. See, and I, I expect a bill, you know, I'll send you the yes. bill, you know, uh, my dad, Don't was a yeah. yeah, I'll bill you. Oh, was my, dad he? Was a, my dad was a shrink. So now I, he'll be so proud. Uh, there you I'm go. Now I'm now following in his footsteps. So thanks. there you go. <laughs> All right. So I like to finish it up with uh what to watch so what do you guys at think factory have coming up
1: well mama june uh the current season of mama june um you talk about how we gave her a second chance this is she's now on her like fourth or fifth chance she uh (laughs) she after having some some drug and legal problems um where she's she's trying to get her life back and get her family back so every friday night mama june is on we tv we are uh Producing new seasons of Marriage Bootcamp, we have Young Gospel, we have um, we have a show uh, that we that was announced that we haven't shot yet. Um, We shot the pilot, but it was picked up by TBS called Rat in the Kitchen. Nice, um, starring uh, Natasha Leggero and Chef Ludo. It's a yeah, she's amazing. Again, see, I get to work with these great comedians. You know, yeah, she's really Um, funny. It's a great. It's a great format that we developed with uh, with some of our ITV partners in the UK called Right in the Kitchen. So it's kind of like imagine if you took Hell's Kitchen and knives out and combined them. It's okay. kind of like a, it's it's a cooking show, but one of the cooks is actually a mole sabotaging the dishes wow. and the cooks have to figure out who the saboteur is. It's a lot. Pilot was so much fun and Natasha and Ludo killed it. So I'm excited to do that with our partners at TBS and yeah just you know got a lot of irons in the fire you, you got to it's as much yeah. as you love to think it's art it's also a numbers game
0: it is and you got to have yeah. a
1: lot going on to have one or two happen so we're nice. out there churning
0: adam thank you so much man that this has been great come back anytime thank you for I, having uh, me yeah yeah i look forward. yeah it. and hopefully it.
1: Uh, you and all your loyal listeners will win when live comedy is hopefully going to start really soon so set your DVRs for the Think Factory TV shows and come down to the comedy store or ha ha and come come hopefully i'll make you laugh.
0: Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script No Problem. For everybody listening, please remember, subscribe, download and rate the show with 5 stars, available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Luminary and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also email any questions that you have at no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. Now, if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at believe.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem.